0: Following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. I want to begin today by asking you to ponder a question that uh, we we often ask our um, attendees at the Journey Together membership class to ask or to answer. Um, So, if you recently took the membership class, you're familiar with this question already, but I want to ask it of you, uh, all of you together. And the question is this: I want you to think of something that you made that you're proud of, something cool that you made, that you are proud of. It uh, could be something that you built, could be a work of fine art, uh, could be something big, could be something small. Um, we, we get very creative answers, <laughs> fittingly, to this question when we ask it and journey together. Um, and so I don't do this too often, but I'm actually going to ask you to share this with your neighbor, okay? So what's something that you've made or created or worked on, project at work, hobby at home, anything that could be, could be anything. Tell your neighbor what it is and why you're proud of it. And I'll give you like one minute. So you, you both have to be brief, okay? All right, go ahead. All right, is the second person sharing yet? Because they should be. All right, about 10 more seconds. So let me show you something that I've made that I'm very proud of. I, some of you know that I build uh, guitar effects pedals um, because I can't get good enough at guitar to really satisfy myself, so I have to make the sounds that my guitar makes uh, better. <laughs> and so this is a pedal that I built recently. I called it the ambient echo machine. It's a, it's an, it's a delay pedal. It's a, it's a simulated tape echo, uh, if you must know. Um, but uh, I could go through, I could probably talk about this for 20 minutes and tell you all the different cool sounds it makes. I would bored 99% of you to death, and the other 1% of you would love me even more than you already do. Um, suffice it to say, it was a... Uh, By my scale, it was quite a feat of engineering, Uh, and I'm quite proud of it. And um, Dave actually designed the the decal on the top of it, so it was a collaborative effort. Um, So that's something that I made. I don't know what yours was. It was probably, like, way cooler than this. Um, But there's a Greek word for something that we make. Anything that that has been made uh, in Greek is uh, called a poema. Poema. Do you want to say that with me in Mr. Rogers' style? Poema. <laughs> there's, now, there's an, there's an English word that eventually derives from this word. Can you guess what it is? Poem, of course. That's right. Um, but in Greek, it's more generalized than that. In Greek, it's just anything that has been made. A thing that has been made is called a poema in Greek, and um, that, that uh, gets adopted in Latin, and then it gets adopted in French, and then it gets adopted in English, and that's the, uh, the etymological history here for those who would like to know. Uh, but now, the most important thing is that you know a, a new Greek word that you can use to impress your friends. And I am, I'm certain they'll be quite impressed uh, if you tell them that. So, there's a, there's a really fascinating story in the Old Testament in today's Hebrew Bible reading from the lectionary where Moses, the leader of the Israelites, makes something. And uh, this is a little bit of an anachronism because it's, you know, before Greek became the language of the land. But it was a poema, something that Moses made. With his hands. So what had happened? You can find this story in uh, Numbers chapter twenty-one. If you'd like to kind of check up on it, uh, verses four through nine is the passage that the lectionary assigns. I'm not going to read it to you, but I'll summarize a little bit of what happens. Um, so the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness. They've been led out of Egypt by Moses, and they become impatient. As you know, if you've read the story, that they do quite often. They they become impatient on a fairly regular schedule. And they speak out against God and against Moses. And then it says, the Lord sent poisonous serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many Israelites died. It's not a happy story. (laughs) At least not yet. So the, the, the people are dismayed and they repent. They confess their sin. To Moses, and, and Moses prays to the Lord on their behalf. And God gives Moses a solution. And God tells Moses to do this kind of bizarre thing. So all the people are getting bitten by poisonous serpents. So Moses, I want you to fashion a serpent out of bronze. Or maybe it's, I want you to bronze a serpent. I'm not quite sure what it actually works out to be. But put it on a pole and stand it up in the center of camp. And whenever a serpent bit someone, the text tells us, That person would look at the serpent of bronze and live. Whenever a serpent bit someone, they would look at the serpent of bronze on the pole and they would live. Much later in the story of the scriptures, Jesus refers to this story in predicting his own death in a conversation with a Jewish leader named Nicodemus. This happens in John chapter 3. The lectionary also gives us this text today. The lectionary, this great collection of texts, four per week, all through the year, on a three-year cycle. Sometimes you're like, I don't know who picked these four to go together. I don't see any connections whatsoever. And then other times, like today, all four of them just kind of sing uh, in this beautiful four-part harmony. Um, so in John chapter 3, uh, which if you'd like to turn to, you can. It's verses 14 through 20, 21. Once again, I'm not going to read the whole passage, but I will summarize what happens. Jesus is on the rooftop at night with Nicodemus, who's a leader of the Jewish uh, law, a uh, teacher of the Jewish law. And he's, at, he's there at night because uh, Jesus was not exactly someone you'd want to be seen with if you were uh, a Pharisee. And he's asking Jesus all these questions. And Jesus is like, you're a teacher of the law, even you don't get it? And then he refers to the story from Numbers 21, with the serpent being raised up in the wilderness. And he says to Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now that's John 3.15, and you know what comes after John 3.15, right? John three sixteen, which is the one that you hold up at the football games, right? And everybody in the whole stadium gets converted. It's the, it's the most effective evangelism tool ever. Um, For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's the King James Version that I memorized as a little boy. And that comes right before John 3.17, which is often left out of the story, which is very beautiful, and I would encourage you to read sometime on your own. But, John 3.15, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man, Jesus is speaking of himself there, be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, permit me to make a little bit of a a rest stop on the highway that is this sermon. Um, This may seem like it's out of nowhere, but I want to make this connection for you because it's really something that's become important to me. Something that came up last week, not on Sunday, but on Saturday night at our event here with Dominique Gilliard, the Rethinking Incarceration event, Uh, and it comes out of his book, Um, is the idea of atonement theory. Okay, Now, I I know this is like a, a $15 seminary term, Uh, and you may have no idea what it means, and and you may not want to know what it means. I'll tell you, though, and then you never have to think about it again, at least with this phrase. It doesn't matter to me whether you know the word. There's not going to be a quiz on this. But the idea of atonement theory is very important, and this is is precisely the point that Dominique makes in his book. Atonement theory is very simply uh, how we describe the way that Jesus saves us. How is it that on the cross Jesus saves us? And you can talk about that in a lot of different ways. And one of the very important points that that Dominic Gilliard makes is that the way that the uh, Western Protestant Church has talked about atonement, the way, in other words, that we've described how Jesus saves us, has contributed to the epidemic of mass incarceration that uh, plagues our nation. And the reason is this. The predominant theory of atonement in our little sector of the church, which is quite big and quite powerful in our country is uh, primarily to think about punishment and sin as a crime that must be punished and Jesus on the cross taking on himself the, the wrath of God and the punishment for sin that each one of us should have borne and taking it on himself instead. And this is, uh, this is the way, the, in some cases, the only way the church talks about the uh, consequences of sin and the nature of salvation. And if you think about it, it makes sense why Dominique would put this in his book. Because if the only, uh, you know, when, when all you've got is a hammer, everything looks like a nail kind of theory, right? If the, if the only way you talk about salvation is with crime and punishment, and if punishment is actually the way that people are saved, well, then of course we're going to punish criminals harshly. Of course we're not going to have mercy on prisoners. Of course we're not going to show any compassion or empathy for them because it's in their punishment that they're actually being saved. And so our criminal justice system is, is doing spiritual work. Now, very few people would say that explicitly now. They did in the time of the Puritans and you know, up until probably the 19th century. But how many people have heard that as the the primary way you understand salvation? Raise your hand if that's the way that salvation has always been talked about in your church or in the culture at large if you don't go to church regularly. Okay. Well, here's the thing. There is language in the Bible that would point us in that direction. It's not like people made that up out of whole cloth. But the Bible... This is so crucially important. The Bible has all kinds of language about atonement, about how Jesus saves us on the cross. It's not just spoken about in these legal and crime and punishment terms. Atonement is talked about in the Bible as adoption. How's that for a beautiful image? As a change of loyalty, like a, like a, like a citizenship transfer. Atonement is uh, described as a cleansing of something that's, that's dirty. Uh, atonement is talked about as a metamorphosis. How's that for a beautiful image? Right? And so there's lots of ways that, that the biblical authors talk about how we are saved by God through Jesus on the cross. And I think we would do really well to absorb as many of them as we can because, of course, the truth of the matter is there's no single one image or metaphor that can tell the whole story by itself. This is why biblical literacy is important. If, you, if, if, the, if the extent of your knowledge of the Bible is the, the verses you might have been made to memorize as a child, as I was, not that that's a bad thing, it's a good thing, we should actually memorize scripture more. If the extent of your knowledge of the Bible is uh, the few verses that get picked out in the, in the devotional by your favorite thinker, and you don't kind of get beyond that, then you have, uh, you have not sufficient biblical literacy to understand the depth and breadth and, and beauty of God's salvation in the world, of us and of the whole world. And here in Numbers 21, and reinforced in John chapter 3, we have one small, somewhat obscure, but very powerful example of a different image, a different metaphor for atonement, for how we are saved. Our salvation, we could part together from these two texts, is, is like an anti-venom. We are all poisoned by the bite of the serpent, as good as dead, in our sin. The venom is in our blood, and it will kill us. And yet Jesus is lifted up in the midst of our camp, and looking to Jesus is the antidote to the poison that corrupts our blood. What a visceral and shockingly beautiful way to think about our salvation. We're as good as dead because of this poison that has infected us, and Jesus is the antidote. The idea of being dead in sin is something that the Apostle Paul reflects on in, you guessed it, a third text from the lectionary today. And I actually want to park in this one for a little bit. This is from Ephesians chapter 2, and um, it offers us uh, some important reminders about our faith. I, I am going to read this one uh, in its entirety. Um, it's Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Now, if you'd like to read along with me, you can use the red Bibles and turn to page 949. Um, If you'd like to listen along, you can do that or use your own Bible. I encourage you to bring your own Bible if you own it. It's good to read the one that you own. And if you don't have one, then now you do because this red one is for you. Uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. I'm going to pause right there and just make a couple of observations about this text, which is very rich and and deep. There's so much there. It starts out with a pretty stark statement, which may feel to some of us as an accusation. You were once dead in your sins, in your trespasses. Even those of us who've had a salvation type of experience in the church might feel the sting of that a little bit. We don't want to think about it. And if you haven't had that kind of experience and you you recognize that what Paul is doing right here is describing a state that you are in that he wants to get you out of, well, that may not feel very good either. But it's not just you. He goes on to say all of us All of us are victims of this bite of the serpent. All of us have this poison in our veins. And God wants to make us alive. God raises us up in Christ. Not just in the way that Christ was raised up on the cross, but the way that Christ was raised from the grave and the way that Christ was raised into the heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. We just spoke those words in the Apostles' Creed not too long ago. And the promise here is that we get to participate in all of that raising up. All of that lifting up is ours to experience through trust in Christ. And the whole thing, all of it comes by God's boundless mercy and grace. Not because of anything we've ever done or anything we could ever do if we had eternity to practice and get really good at doing the things that we think would save us. Paul says, not the result of works. Why? So that no one might boast. That one is pretty important. That's been the subject of a pretty significant debate in church history. We had a whole reformation about it. We are saved by faith, not by works. That's our team's version of it, right? (laughs) The, The Catholics... They don't think that. We had to get away from them. Thank goodness for Martin Luther and John Calvin, those great lawyers who, uh, who gave us all of that atonement theory based on crime and punishment. But anyway, when, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And if you're a lawyer, no offense to you, but we might need other people's perspectives in developing a rich atonement theory. Um, just like the world needs people who are not humanity's dorks like me, right? Okay. <laughs> Which one are you clapping for right now? <laughs> we even have a fancy Latin phrase for it, ironically enough, since we, we, we wanted to use it against the Roman Catholic Church. Sola fide, by faith alone. We are saved by faith, not by works. We're saved by faith, not by works. We are saved by faith, not by works. And here's what happens when groups of people get into big fights they draw lines and they say you're on that side of the line and i'm on this side of the line and while we're pushing each other we're we're getting farther apart but we're also getting farther away from the center aren't we and this fight that erupted over faith and works with fault being able to be given on both sides led the Protestants and the Catholics to push each other so far away. And what happens when you push the other people, the people who are wrong, when you push them away really hard, what you do is you push yourself away from the center and pretty soon you're espousing a view that is every bit as radical as the one that you think they have. It just wears a different color t-shirt. It happens, I don't need to tell you, all the time in our politics... Boy, we've, have, we, have we had a rough couple of years in this respect. All those people who voted for the wrong person last year, we push them away, and then we, we, get, we get pushed back further and further into our side of things until we're so far from where we originally were that even we are totally unrecognizable. And the chances of reconciling when we've pushed each other so far away diminish, if you haven't noticed. In the case of faith versus works, this great debate between the Catholics and the Protestants, we Protestants have gotten so red in the face, shouting about how we're saved by faith and not by works, that we've often missed the importance of, guess what, doing good works. It's almost like we thought, well, we're saved by faith, not by good works, so we better not do any good works. That might unsave us. But take a look at the final verse in today's epistle reading. Ephesians 2.10 For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. Read this. Verse 9 says, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Verse 10 says, for we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So here's the million dollar point. No, you're not saved by good works, but you are saved for good works. If you believe that that doing good works or being a good person is enough to save you, if you believe that's enough to save the whole world, then you are entirely mistaken. The poison runs way too deep. If it's left unchecked, it will destroy you. And if it's left unchecked in our global community, it will destroy all of us. You can't save yourself. No one is good enough to save themselves, the song we sang earlier. But on the other hand, if you have received the anti venom, and now you think, oh, good for me, I get to coast along, and I never have to share God's goodness in any way with the world, I never have to do any good works because that's not how we're saved. And all I'm all I'm concerned about really at the end of the day is getting myself saved and maybe some of my friends. If that's your posture, then you are also entirely mistaken. Because that is the whole point of your existence. That's why God made you. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. This is the way, this is, the, this is what we were always supposed to be doing. Good works. And the problem is we got confused and thought that that was for the purpose of our own salvation rather than for bringing about God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And so let me close with this. You, each one of you, you were created by God in Christ Jesus for good works that's why you were made God made you I wish that I had time to say each one of your names God made you God made you you We are what God has made us There's another translation of this verse that says we are God's masterpiece Do you know what Greek word is used here in Ephesians 2.10? I bet you can guess. It might be the only Greek word you know. (laughs) Poema. We are God's poema. You are God's poema. You are the very poetry of God. You are God's painting. You are the magnum opus of the composer of the entire universe. You are the Ming vase, the walnut cabinet. You are the perfectly compiled code. You are the ultimate mathematical theorem. You are the unifying theory. You, we, are God's masterpiece. And the reason God made us is to do these good works, to make divine poemas ourselves. Because we are God's work. Our job is to make God's work in the world. Our job is to be activated so much by the gratitude that we have for God that we would carry God's goodness into the world around us, that we would truly... See it saved as we have seen ourselves truly saved. We were raised up to rise up and to do God's good work in the world. Let's pray together. Creator God, we are so grateful to you for this beautiful truth that that we are your masterpiece. We are your poema. We are just what you have made us. Help us to bask in the glow of the good promises that you have given in creating us in Christ Jesus. Thank you for the sobering reminder that we are poisoned by our trespasses and sins by our transgressions, by our iniquities. We give you great thanks and praise for the antidote in Christ our Lord, raised among us in our camp, that whoever looks to Jesus and trusts in him would be saved, would be healed and cured of the affliction that afflicts us all. Help us now from this moment to remember that your grace is given to us for our salvation not as a spiritual life insurance policy but as strength and power and activation and inspiration to do good works in the world around us to make divine poemas in our families, in our places of work, in our neighborhoods, in our city, in our world. We pray these things through Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Well, as we sing our last couple of songs, I'd like to invite you to come and receive Holy Communion. Artisan practices an open table which means that all who are seeking to follow Jesus are welcome to come and receive this, um, this gift of mystery, this sacrament, this holiness, this sacred meal. Uh, you can take a piece of the bread and dip it in one of the cups. We have a gluten-free bread in the middle. We have wine and juice uh, at each station. Choose whatever is best for you. Remember Christ's body, which is broken for you. Remember Christ's blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. May it be for you the body and blood of the Savior. May it be food for your hungry souls. And may it be a sacrament of unity with each other and with Christians around the world and throughout time who have practiced this beautiful ritual together. And may it strengthen you for the work ahead. We'll have a member of the prayer team at the back of the room if you'd like to receive prayer during this time. And you can go and get your kids and have them be part of this communion um, table with you if you'd like or get them right after you take. Either way is fine. Let's continue to worship God as the Spirit speaks into our hearts and leads us out. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.